You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 76 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast, a Bart Officer creation. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is the show for January 2020, the start of a whole new decade. So this first show of the decade has a slight rebranding, as you may have heard. More on that at the end of the show. Uh, But the first one is a solo show, just a load me, and I'm doing another one of the jargon-busting episodes. Um, Specifically, I want to talk to you about image file formats. There is a confusing sea of different file formats we can use. So when should we use what, I guess, is a reasonable question. And to me, it's all about understanding why these different formats were were created. You know, what problem was some engineer somewhere solving? And once you sort of keep that in your head, or at least I have found that if I keep that in my head, I then understand why I might use a format, uh, because of course they all they all have trade offs, right? It's um, they were all designed to optimize for different things, and in order to achieve an optimization, you know, the real world tends to be kind of a you know you get something, you give something kind of place. So if you want to maximize property number one, you usually have to sacrifice property number two or three. So those trade-offs are a big deal, and what it is that the the format is trying to achieve is a big deal, and I'm going to look at it from the point of view of what the formats are trying to do, and then the trade-offs involved, and we'll take it from there. Now, before we get stuck into the nitty-gritty, I want to start by sort of excluding a whole bunch of stuff. So the first thing to say is image files fall into two categories. One of them is really relevant to us in this podcast, and one of them is utterly irrelevant, but we need to mention it because it's dangerous in the sense that if we save our photographs in a graphics format instead of a photo format, we are going to throw away data. So what's, you know, they're both images, right? A a graphic is an image and a photo is an image. So why should there be different file formats? Well, graphics and images are very different types. Sorry, graphics and photographs are very different types of images. So a graphic are things like icons, diagrams, charts, clip art, you know, logos, those kind of things. And when you look at those, they are different in their makeup to a photograph, right? So if you take a photograph of the real world, it will have a massive range of subtly different colors. Whereas if you look at a graphic, it will generally have a much smaller set of colors and much you won't have the kind of, as much of the kind of variation you get in the real world. You will often find in graphics you have large areas of identical color. The real world does not have large areas of identical color. Even a solid blue sky isn't solid blue. It's actually subtle gradations and variations all the way across. Graphics will tend to have very precise lines, you know, 
really straight lines, perfectly drawn curves. Yeah, real world, not so much. A lot more organic, a lot less exact. And graphics will have exact colors. When a, you know, when a logo has red, it has true red. But in photographs, we have this whole concept of white balance and all these kind of things, and hence we have color profiles and none of that, right? White balance, color profiles, none of that applies to graphics. So they are very different animals. And different animals means that the formats were optimized for the wrong thing for photographs. So the data representations and the compression algorithms, they're optimized for keeping sharp lines sharp keeping areas of the same color the same color. They're, they're, they're really efficient at compressing, you know, large swath, swatches of the same color or whatever. Uh, they are designed to store simply the actual color value you want, as opposed to this whole, you know, ICC color profile carry-on we have in photographs. They're just, they're different. Uh, the metadata they store is also different because they're aiming at a completely different thing. So unless you're storing an icon, a logo, some pop art, a diagram, a chart, a graph, don't use a graphics format because it's the wrong tool for the job. You're hitting your screw with a hammer instead of a screwdriver. So the other thing to say is graphics formats come in two types. You have vector formats, which are actually infinitely scalable because they simply describe shapes. Now you put a square here, fill it in with this color, stroke it in this way, put another square over there, and therefore you can resize them infin infinitely. So they're vector graphics, and I think scalar vector graphics, or SVG, are sort of the, the most common open format. And the other format is called raster graphics, and these are your basic pixel, 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 pixel uh, graphics formats. And the biggie, biggie, biggie for years and years and years here is GIF or GIF, depending on where you fall on that little war. Um, or it's modern, up-to-date, more efficient friend, the Portable Network Graphic, or PNG. So, GIFs, PNGs, SVGs, not for photos. Now, I mentioned trade-offs. So what kind of things could our photographic formats trade off against each other? The... Probably the one that drives an awful lot is file size, right? This this was a huge driver a decade ago, an even bigger driver two decades ago. It's arguably becoming less of a driver because we have such fast internet now. We have such large phones. Not quite as critical as it used to be, but it certainly was extremely critical for a long time that photographic formats be file size efficient. You know, it People people felt it when you had a really big file format a decade or two ago. Uh, and the annoying, well, not the annoying thing, the, the, the simple fact of life is if you want to store information and take up less room, you're going to have to compress it. Either you store less, you just throw away data and don't store it at all, that's one way to make your file size smaller, or you compress it. And compression algorithms fall into two categories. Ooh, are we going into some serious computer science here? 
So you have a lossy compression and lossless compression. So lossy compression involves throwing away more data. Um, the, I guess the example we think of probably most often in terms of lossy compression would be MP3. Um, and MP3 throws away the frequencies the human ear technically can't hear. And it sort of mushes some stuff together and hence it, it is spectacularly smaller than raw CD data. Lossless compression is like a zip file, right? If you zip up a Word document and then you unzip it, you get back the identical Word document you started with. Nothing was lost, even though while it was zipped, it was smaller. But it wouldn't have been as much smaller as it could have been if we were perfectly happy to throw away some data. So a lossless compression will be less compressed, but you you preserve everything. A lossy compression will be more compact at the cost of fidelity of your data. You get back an approximation. And if that approximation is good enough, and if the file saving is important enough, then that's a legitimate trade-off. So trade-off, trade-off, trade-off. Something that also used to be really important and is now pretty much irrelevant is that compression algorithms have... Basically, the more efficient a compression algorithm is, the more CPU and RAM it needs to work, the more computationally complex it has to be. So if you wanted better encryption, you needed to have faster CPUs, more RAM. And that used to be an issue, particularly on portable devices. But that's, again, in the 2020s, we don't really care about that. So, you know, Yes, file size is still important. Lossy versus lossless is vital to understand the difference. But the the fact that different compression algorithms are harder or easier on your CPU, that bit we don't care about anymore. Another trade-off is color depth. So the real world is pretty much infinite color depth, but our the digital sensors on our camera can only capture a certain color depth. So your typical DSLR... In fact, your typical sensor in general is going to capture 12 bits of color. And the typical file format you will use for viewing your files is 8 bits of color. So if the purpose of the photo format is to share finished pictures, then anything beyond the 8 bits they're going to see on their screen is a waste. So, your format can choose to throw it away. Just don't save what we don't need. Reduce the image to an acceptable color depth and throw the rest of the data away. So that, again, it's a trade-off, right? If we saved all color data, we would have a more accurate representation of our photograph, but the file size would be way bigger again. So, again, we're trading off. So how much color depth do we keep? How much resolution do we keep? We could just decide, you know, something. We These two pixels actually are similar enough to each other. Let's just pretend they're the same. Is one way you can uh, sort of lose resolution without losing pixel dimensions. And the other way you can lose resolution is simply to say, oh, yeah, it's 5,000 pixels across in this one. Nah, I'm just going to save it at four, uh, you know, at uh, 2,500 pixels or whatever. Throw half of them away. That's certainly a way to uh, trade off a bit of resolution. And then the other big thing is what data and metadata are stored inside the image. So obviously, you're going to have the intensity and the color of every pixel 
that's always there. But there's actually a lot more to it than that. So when you take a picture with your DSLR, the sensor is capturing your full 12 bits of color data. Basically, you have a red channel, a green channel, a blue channel, and a luminosity channel. So you have four channels per pixel, probably, in most sensors. And you could store all that information, and then you would have an extremely accurate representation of what the sensor saw. And then you could, you know, it has also advantages to have all that information. But you can't see that on a screen, so you probably don't want to store all of that information for all formats, so you can throw a bunch of it away. When you take a picture on your camera, your camera has all sorts of internal settings and tweaks and whatnots, and it will save that information with the picture. So you have a whole bunch of, you know, extra data that's specific to your camera, like, you know which focus point was used, which mode was used. That is, you know, if if your camera supports a portrait mode, well, then that's information specific to your camera. Maybe you had the portrait mode set and the portrait mode has some sort of, you know, intensity setting. Well, it's another specific setting to your camera. And so that information exists and the file format may or may not choose to store it. So that's sort of proprietary, non-standard, right? Every camera is different. And the, that information exists and it may or may not get stored in the file format. And then we have recognized standards for metadata. Um, the most recognizable of those is probably good old-fashioned EXIF, which is the extensible image file format, if you must know. It is metadata describing how and where a photo was taken, and that includes geolocation data. And then we also have IPTC, which stands for the International Press Telecommunications Council. And this is metadata describing what the photo was of, who took it, and who owns it. And a lot of apps take the IPTC and the EXIF data, and they combine them together and show you one unified list of metadata. But some apps like Apple's Preview and, uh, in the olden days, Apple's Aperture actually use different tabs to show you the IPTC and the EXIF data. And they really are different beast but at the end of the day it's metadata right it's information about the photograph where was it taken and how and what's it of who took it and who owns it we want all of those things right so we might want a caption for a photograph that's iptc data we might want to copyright iptc data we might want to know what the exposure the focal length and the f the the iso were that's exif data we might want to know it's you know where it was taken exif data Again, the, you know, those two cover an awful lot, and they are widely recognized standards. So which we do and which we don't store is, again, another trade-off that we come across in our various file formats. So that, that's the big picture stuff. So now let's get stuck in and talk about the specific groupings of file formats. So the first collection of formats I want to talk about are raw formats. They see raw file. So the point of a raw file is to collect everything the camera has to offer, right? Every bit of data the sensor collected, every setting on the camera, every bit of metadata available to the camera, capture the camera's brain at the moment the photograph was taken, shove it all in a file, and then make it available to the photographer later so that they can change their mind on as much of it as possible. So. Every sensor works differently. 
So that means that most RAW formats are at least vendor-specific, if not sensor family-specific. So if you shoot with a Nikon DSLR you, and you set it to RAW, you don't get a .RAW file, you get a .NEF file, which is Nikon something format, I'm guessing. If you're a Canon shooter, you get a .CRW or a CR2 file, right? So the different sensors and the different cameras, they capture different information and store it in different ways, and they have different settings, so their RAW files are different. The point of the RAW file is to capture it all. Now, the big exception here is something called the digital negative or .dng file, which is something invented by Adobe. And it was designed to be a generic enough format that any camera's raw information could be stored in this format. And some modern cameras actually store stuff directly into DNG format. And the great thing there is that you have... DNG support is way more widespread because it's a standard standard. Whereas you can only use an app that understands Nikon RAW to open an F file, and you can only use an app that understands Canon RAW to open a CRW or a CR2 file. So Adobe's DNG is actually a really nice step forward because it means that RAW formats are actually becoming a standard, which is good. So RAW files are chock-o-block full of data and metadata. That means they're generally quite big. It stores really specific stuff down to how far away was the lens focused, what focus point was active, what focus mode was active, what, you know, what was the camera in program mode or was it an aperture priority mode or was yeah, every little setting, it's all in there. Uh, now, because the RAW file has captured so much, they enable oh so much stuff to be done in post without the need to guess. So no interpolation or estimation or way, way less. You can basically change your mind and all sorts of stuff. Because you've captured all of the color data in the file, you can change the white balance in post losslessly, right? If you change the white balance on an image format that has thrown away the data that wasn't used, well, then the image editor has to guess. If you have the raw file, you have the actual data from the sensors, so you just recalculate. You get, and it's as if you had dialed in the appropriate white balance at the time. So you, you get to have a little time machine. You can also make very, you know, unguessed changes in exposure because you're using eight bits of the data for the final outputted image, but the camera sensor captured probably 12, if not more bits. Well, eight is smaller than 12. You've kept all the data from the sensor, so there's more data than you're using. So you can nudge the exposure up or down, say if it's 8 and 12, then up by 2 or down by 2, without guessing, without interpolating, without, without estimation. The data's there, so you can use it. You can recover shadow detail because the data's really there. You can recover highlight detail because the data's really there. So that's why raw formats are superb for editing, right? Raw formats are compressed but losslessly. So they are they have full fidelity. They don't lose any of your data. And they're huge. They are big files, especially if your sensor has a deep color depth or many, many megapixels, a lot of information. They're usually proprietary, so you need to have apps that support them. And that means that if you send 
a random family member who's not a photographer a raw file, the chances of them being able to view its content are small. You need a true photo editing app, and that photo editing app has to support your particular make and model of camera, or the raw file will be unintelligible to that photo editing app. So these are back-end formats. They're formats for photographers to keep a permanent record of their image. They're not a final product. They're they're an original. They're a master that you, the artist, keep, and you use that to create the finished product for sharing. So raw formats are very different to what you would post on Twitter or send to someone. So what would you post on Twitter or send to someone? Well, I have given this family, very small family, but we'll get back to that later. So I say the next grouping in my mind of photographic file formats is photo sharing formats. The whole point here is to share the finished product of your work widely. So the single most important thing is that support for viewing these image formats needs to be ubiquitous. It should be viewable by just about any software on just about any device. That is the point of these formats. Size used to be vital and is now just important. So file size is definitely a priority, especially online, and it's usually traded off against image quality and color depth. So your camera may take 20 megapixel photographs, but Twitter isn't going to share 20 megapixels of photographs. If you don't resize it before uploading it to Twitter, Twitter will certainly resize it for you before sending it out to all of your thousands of followers. So what they get on their phone is going to have way, way, way fewer pixels than what you sent up. Um, regardless of how much color depth you throw in, the chances are that it will get you know reduced to 8 bits before it gets shared across Flickr. In fact, to be honest, editing, as you edit out of your photo editing app, the chances are you will choose the destination resolution and you'll choose the destination color depth. And so the you know the, the, the image will be smaller. The image is always going to be smaller than your RAWs. Uh, these photo sharing formats support standardized metadata formats. So your XFs and your IPTC but not the camera-specific stuff. So not which Nikon preset you used or which Canon setting you used or whatever. It's only the EXIF and the IPTC stuff that gets in here, which includes the geodata potentially, so be careful of that. Because these formats are specifically designed for sharing photographs, they have support for ICC color profiles so you can accurately render to screens and print. Screens being the most important. They're not useful, or they're not designed, they're not suitable, they're not optimized for making edits to, because the original data is not stored. It's a subset, and the result of extensive processing and compression is what you have. You don't have the high-fidelity original, you have an extremely low-fidelity copy. You don't edit. It's like photocopying a photocopy sort of idea. You don't, you don't make your edits on the compressed, reduced simplified output you make your edits on the raw and these days it's extremely straightforward to know which photo sharing format you should use really you have a choice of one jpeg if you're wondering what jpeg stands for 
It's actually an abbreviation for the name of the group that created it, the Joint Photographic Experts Group. And JPEG is, internally, it uses a lossy compression algorithm, but it's a parameterized compression algorithm. So you will notice on a good photo app that you have this thing called the quality slider. And that quality slider is a parameter into the JPEG compression algorithm, which basically says, how lossy may I be? And if you slide it all the way, usually to the right, to perfect quality, you actually get a lossless compression, but a big file size. And if you slide it all the way the other way, you get a very, very lossy compression that looks horrific. All sorts of horrible, horrible artifacting in ick. So when it comes to sharing, there's only one show in town. It's JPEG, really good metadata, compressed, lossy compression, ubiquitously supported, nice small file sizes. Now, we're not done yet because actually we've skipped a step in between. So what I call the photo edit formats, you know, so the camera took a file and saved it, ideally speaking, as a raw if we want to capture as much information as possible. We then choose to edit the file to produce a sharing format or JPEG. So we have raw in, JPEG out. Now, maybe if we never stored our edits, we'd be done. But most of us do want to store our edits. And we don't just want to store the result of the edit. We actually want to store all the steps we took so that we can go back into that edit and tweak the edit. And so there are file formats for storing the edits in a photograph. And these are extremely application-specific. They are usually, but not always, proprietary. Um, and they are utterly, utterly unsuitable for sharing with anyone other than another photographer who uses the same software as you. So examples of common proprietary formats would be Photoshop's PSD format. Right? Unless someone else has Photoshop, they're not going to get a good rendering of that PSD file. You know, yes, there are third-party open source stuff that make a good guess at implementing the PSD standard, but it's not a published standard, so they're reverse engineering and guessing, right? And every different app is using its own behind-the-scenes stuff. A lot of a lot of photo editing apps actually store the edits in a database, so you as a human don't even have a... I have no idea what file format Apple's Photos app uses. I know it stores the edits, but I have no idea what the file extension is. And the app hides it from us completely. But there is a photo edit format in play here. And uh, one subtle exception to the fact that it's almost all proprietary are XMP sidecar files. Um, XMP is a standard for storing basically anything. It's an extensible... Oh, I forgot to write down what that acronym is. It's extensible something... Um, basically, extensible metadata platform. If it's metadata, XMP can store it. And a list of edits is metadata. But how to interpret a specific app's XMP data is still not a standard, right? So the standard says you can store any name value pairs you like, but if you store a name value pair that only makes sense to one app, okay, it's in a .xmp file, but it's still meaningless to the app that didn't write it. But anyway, it is a standardized format. Um, And those XMP files can be used to store the edits in an open format next to the original file. So you might have your raw file and sitting next to it a .xmp file with the same name. So that's why they're called sidecars. it's an approach that was fashionable for a while. The logic being, if we if we carefully define the data we put in the XMP file, then in theory, our edits are portable among multiple apps. Nice theory. I don't, in my experience, it hasn't worked out. 
So our photo editing formats sit between our RAWs and our sharing, and they're excruciatingly proprietary, and they are completely dependent on the apps, and they're useless for sharing. So at this stage, I really must be done, right? There can't be any more. Actually, no, there's, there's one more. What I call the photographic data formats. So they are designed to represent all of the photographic data with as much fidelity as possible, but in a portable format. So in other words, what we want is as much of the data as we can get from our raw, but it's not quite raw data because it has been processed into pixel data. And it's not all of the metadata, it's only the standards compliant metadata. But nonetheless, if the camera captured 12 bits of color, these formats are designed to hold that 12 bits of color. If the camera captured a whole bunch of, or if you, the photographer even, have created a whole bunch of IPTC and EXIF data, the formats are designed to hold that data. So it's all the standardized stuff. So when the vendor-specific stuff is, 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 is distilled out, you're left with a, a large amount of pixels with a large color depth and a lot of standard metadata. Not all the metadata the camera captured, but all the standard stuff. And you want to share that high fidelity version of the photograph in a really standards compliant way in a really accessible format that's widely supported. So you want half of what a JPEG gives you, half of the sharing format, but you're not sharing with, you know, regular folk. You're sharing with other photographers or most likely, in fact, other photography apps. So you don't want to take, you don't want to compress, you don't want to throw away color depth, you Wait, sorry, you want to compress, but lossy, not lossy. And those data, those photographic data formats are actually really, really important because even if you don't see them, and you can see them and you can use them explicitly, but even if you never see them, they're often used behind your back. Um, if you're using a photo editing app or some sort of digital asset management app, and you round trip the image to an external editor or an external plugin, the chances are the way the data gets out of the proprietary photo editing format of your app of choice into whatever internal proprietary representation the plugin or second app uses, the way the data goes from one to the other is using one of these photographic data formats as the intermediary. So the originating app converts to this photographic data format, sends that over to the receiving app, which then converts it into its internal representation, lets you do whatever it is you're doing, converting it to monochrome, doing an HD or whatever it is you're doing, doing a tone map. And then it finishes its work, repackages it in this photographic data format, and then shoves it back whence it came. Unpack and back into the proprietary format. So you're talking about you want to hold all the data that you can, high fidelity, total fidelity, deep color depth, support for color profiles, support for all the standardized metadata, so your IPTC and your your EXIF. You want support for compression because otherwise these things would be huge, but lossless, always lossless. Although technically speaking, some of these formats, if you choose, you can pick a lossy compression. Why? I don't know why you do that. That just defeats the purpose, but they do technically support it in the spec, some of them. So data fidelity is what is traded off here. So you generally end up with large files because you trade it off against file size. Again, often used for photo management apps and also used to share information among photographers. 
also used to share information within the print industry, because if you really do want to get a high-quality poster print, the JPEG compression is actually a terrible idea. So you actually want a format designed not to compress. And also the other people who spend a lot of time working with imagery other than photographers are scientists, because an awful, awful lot of science involves imaging of some sort. And so scientists want photographic or image data, and so they use these formats too. So within the photographic world, the absolute hands-out winner here is the tagged image file format, a.k.a. TIFF. And, you know, TIFFs tend to come in either 8-bit or 16-bit flavors, and 16 bits is a lot of color data, so they're extremely good at what they do. And if you, you know, if you need to get a high fidelity output from your photo app of choice, a TIFF file is a great way to do it. You can send it to pretty much any other photographer because while they may be using a completely different photo editing app, everything can read TIFF and everything can write TIFF. So it's a really good interchange format. And if you're a scientist, particularly astrophotography is where this really comes in. So that's a nice, you know, it's where the two worlds meet, right? My, my science hat and my photography hat meet in a place called the Flexible Image Transport System, or FITS. So astrophotographers, well, okay, astronomers will use FITS images because that's what comes out of telescopes. If you have a CCD, the chances are you get out of FITS because it's capturing all of the data in a standardized format. And CCD cam- CCDs tend to be really proprietary in the inside, so you need something high fidelity, not proprietary out so that you can then shove it into your, you know, spectrum analyzer or whatever it is you're doing with the data. And that that's where FITS comes in. So if you're interested in photography, you may or may not encounter FITS, but really for most of us, it's TIFF is the hands down winner here. So, okay, we really are done now, right? That, that really is it. So remember, never use a graphics format to store a photograph. They're not for that. They do a terrible job at that. Remember that you're always making trade-offs with every choice you make, and so make those trade-offs consciously. You know, yes, I'm using a JPEG because my intention is to share widely and efficiently. I know that means I've thrown away data. I know that means the image isn't editable afterwards, but it's fine because it's the final output with the intention of sharing. Great. I need to get as much information out of my camera into my photo editing app as possible. Raw file, just everything the camera has to offer, take it all. But I know I can only use it on an app with support for my specific camera. And I know that I can't share this with other people because it's just not widely supported, right? It's 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 a very, very domain-specific file format. I know that there are photo editing formats used by photo editors to internally store their state. I know that there's formats for sharing widely with the world. And I know that there's photographic data formats for passing information in a standard way from photo-specific purpose to other photo-specific purpose, be that from one photo app to a plugin or from one photo app to another app, or to a printer to print me a really high-quality print. So basically that boils down to never use a GIF, never use a PNG for a photograph. Raw files rock. Their file extension will entirely depend on your camera. If you can get stuff into DNG, you have the advantage that is not proprietary, which is a wonderful exception to the rule there. When it comes to photo sharing, there is only one show in town. It's the ye olde JPEG. 
Photo editing formats are as varied as they come. They are entirely dependent on your app, and it's not one you really think about because your app is doing it behind your back, really. And then finally, photographic data formats. With your photographer hat on, it's TIFFs all the way. Okay, well, I'm hoping that the sea of image formats now makes a little bit more sense and that I haven't confused people more. I hope so. You will find bullet bulleted versions of my show notes, basically what I was using to keep my thoughts together over at lets-talk.ie, which is the podcast webpage, and you will find buttons there to support the show, which I always love it when people do. So you can support the show in all sorts of ways, right? So the before we get into the, the, the more vulgar financial support, just to say that podcasts live of being known about, right? So it is a it is a thing that if you look at your downloads, if you get one percent of people who listen contributing to your podcast, you're doing amazingly well. Like that is stunning participation rates. But Nonetheless, 1% of a bigger number is bigger. So the simple act of sharing the podcast, even though you aren't contributing financially, it actually does help the show financially because you've increased the pool and then a percentage of that pool will contribute. So it still helps. Anyway, maths is fun. Um, There's also the simple fact that it's nice to see your show talked about. It's nice to know that I'm not talking into a microphone that goes nowhere, that's actually plugged into something, that I'm putting my time and effort into writing show notes and someone's actually listening. That, that's that's nice. You know, arguably selfish, but, you know, maybe a little bit narcissistic, but look, I'll be honest, it's nice. So I really like it when people share the show, and I like it also when people write back and say, thanks, Bart, I now understand blah, blah, blah. And I didn't used to. It's nice. And so I really, really, really appreciate everyone who writes a review and their photo in their podcasting app of choice. I like it when people tweet about the show. I'll never see it if you do it on Facebook, but I still like it. Um, you know, no substitute for the actual analog world, right? You know, tell your friends about the show. That is all really good, really valued support. And of course, we have the vulgar practicalities that we live in a world where Money makes the world go round. I am in a situation where it is important that my podcasting be something which is self-supporting. I'm not in a position to voluntarily podcast and put out free shows at a cost to me. <laughs> I just, I would love to be in that sort of a place, but that's not where I am in life. That's c'est la vie. So I need podcasting to break even. And so those of you listening who enjoy the show, who have the disposable income and feel the show gives you value, I appreciate it if you can somehow help me pay the bills. So bills come in every month and listener support comes in every month. And the two are pretty darn well aligned. And that is wonderful. And I thank you so much for it. So the the best way to deal with the monthly bills is to have a monthly income, and that's what Patreon is for. That's the problem Patreon solves. So it allows listeners to pledge a small dollar amount per episode. will be exactly two episodes a month, one Apple, one photography. And so if you'd like to give me $2 a month, pledge one. It'll become two because that's how it works. And the way Patreon is set up, pay the fees don't add up in such a way as to destroy small dollar amounts. Because if you try to give a $1 donation via PayPal, 76% of that goes to PayPal, 
and 24 cent goes to the person you're giving it to. That is stupendously inefficient. If you give a $10 PayPal donation, about a dollar goes, a dollar and a little bit goes to PayPal, and $8 and a lot goes to the person you're giving it to. That's efficient. So the Patreon is a great way to, to have a regular incoming money, there are regular incoming bills. You take one, apply it to the other, problem solved. But of course, you also have out-of-band sort of expenses that aren't every month. You bit a new hardware, a bit of new software, an investment in something. And that's what the PayPal button is for. And again, PayPal is great for large amounts. Patreon is great for recurring small amounts. So thank you very much to everyone who has, who is a patron has been a patron on Patreon. And thank you very much to everyone who has pushed that PayPal button over the last decade. It is genuinely appreciated. This show exists for one reason and one reason only, the support of you guys, the listeners. So thank you. Now, I mentioned at the start of the show a new brand, Bartificer Creations. I've decided that everything I do with my sort of I'm giving this to the community hat is going to be branded Bartificer. Um, there's a backstory if you're curious. Yeah, what the hey? Let's go with the backstory. I wasn't planning to, but hey. Um, many, many, many moons ago, I used to be big into not student politics. Um, the other aspect of the students' union, basically, students getting together to make life on campus better for students. So, not the politics wasn't the thing, right? The thing for me was the clubs and societies that make university life amazing. And I ended up involved in student union politics as the societies officer, which is basically the person who runs the running of clubs and societies on campus. And joining the students' union, one of the things we did is we went on team building exercise. And one of the things we did in the team building exercise was Myers-Briggs personality tests. And my personality type came out as artificer, which is someone who creates, which I kind of liked. Also, my personality profile had one of my favorite phrases ever, prefers economy of effort, which I think is the most polite way anyone's ever told me I'm a lazy bugger. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. One of my students' union colleagues, as soon as I heard that my personality type was artificer, was, yay, you're a bartificer. Hey, I like it. So that's what I've been using since for creative stuff. So open source software I contribute is going to be Bartificer Creations. Um, photography I put in the public domain is going to be Bartificer Creations. And all of the podcasts I do is going to be Bartificer Creations. And you will find all of those things linked at Bartificer.net. So you're going to hear that uh, Bartificer Creations name tagged in at the start and end of podcasts going forward from here on out. Okay, I've jabbered on long enough. Um, Again, thank you for your support in the previous decade. The very best wishes for the next decade. Let's hope there is lots of really fun and interesting stuff that puts itself in front of your camera lens and that you succeed spectacularly in capturing it in the way you like and that when you share it with the world, it gets appreciated, admired and loved by the people you share it with. Until next time, I'm your host, Bart Bouchard. You can find me at bartb.ie. And always, always, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. 
Hi, this is Dave Ginsberg. I'm the host of In Touch with iOS, a podcast that talks about iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, Apple TV, and anything related to those technologies. Um, with my along with my co-host Warren Sklar, um, we get in depth with a lot of great things that relates to iOS and and its technologies. I'd love to give you to give it a listen. Uh, you can find us at intouchwithios.com, or we are in Apple Podcasts or any. Uh, podcatcher will be able to find us um, but uh, give us a listen we'd love to have you listening to uh, those great technologies and relating to ios thanks